Greetings, friends. This is Donna Lynn. This is my second podcast, and today we are going to be discussing revisions, uh, not only with our writing or our work, but also with our life. If you did not check out my first podcast, uh, I had Mark Farolito ask me some questions and kind of dive into why I do this, and we had a great discussion, and I do thank Mark so much for taking time out of his busy schedule to do that with me. Uh, he has really been such an inspiration and he really does promote and encourage me to continue on this journey of writing and also to give me the uh, encouragement to even do this podcast and do the blog. So again, thank you, Mark, very much for everything you do for me. So we are talking about revisions today and um if you did not check out my podcast, uh, I'm sorry, not my podcast, if you did not check out my blog from earlier, uh, please do because I wrote some really helpful hints and we talked a little bit about not just our work of how we could revise, but also our life. And I think that it does go hand in hand and it is things to remember. Um, so if you want, check that out. It's a great blog, I think. And uh, we're gonna get to it about the revisions. So some of the revisions that uh, are important and why they are important rather is uh, as a new writer, you write this great thing and you think, wow, this is good and you're ready for the world to see it. And I think that this is something a lot of writers go through. And even if you're not uh, someone who does this all the time, but maybe sending an email out or a letter to somebody um, that you want them to read, the first time out you think, hey, I'm going to send this out and this is the best work. What you learn is that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, that's almost never the case, regardless of your talent that you may have. So one of the things that we do is, it's something called pre-writing and it's where you get your idea and some people have boards, some people have post-it notes, some people have notebooks, some people sit and just write. And I'm one of those people. I don't do a lot of notes with my writing. I just kind of, something inside of me, I get an idea, I see something, it sparks an idea, and I just start writing. Um, but it is whatever works for you. And then you sit and um, there's a draft. And that's when you really bring your story together and you sit and you get all of your ideas and now you're going to write a story. But it's just a draft. That is not your final piece of work. And people do get stuck thinking that their first is their best and it is going to be your final. That is just simply not true. Though I'm sure there are some exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, you can make things so much better if you take the time to revise your work and edit it. So when your first draft comes out and you're ready to send it out to the world, you realize that the biggest challenge that you have is revising work. Now, it depends on what you have to write and how many words that you need. Sometimes there's limitations, whether it be low or high. Um, so sometimes, for example, I had to do a short story for a class that I'm in for my master's, and it could only be 2,500 words. And there had to be so many literary uh, elements in this piece that it was really difficult to keep it only at 2,500 words. 
And so um, it, you have to cut out words. You have to, you think you have such a great idea, but if it is not relevant to the story, I had to take out a lot of stuff. Though I'm going to take that short story and put it into a bigger piece at some point and kind of pick it apart and have a bigger and better, well, in my opinion, better and longer story, if nothing else. So um, that's the next step. And then the last is the editing. And that's when you really care about punctuation, spelling, and here's a funny story. I read a piece that I did, actually, I'm going to share it with you later, but I wrote the word linens. And I thought I wrote the word linens, I should say. I wrote, wrote the word lines. And I must have reread this piece 50 times. I read it out loud. I recorded myself. I made sure it was perfect before handing it in. And my professor came back and said, oh, you have one spelling error. And I thought, a spelling error? How did I do that? And, um, you know, Grammarly did not pick it up. And it was the word lines instead of linens. So sometimes it helps to have another person read it or read it backwards. And that's very helpful. Um, so some of the other things that are very helpful about when you are revising your work is once you, I call it throwing up on the page. That's just how I write and people do it probably so much more organized, but my brain does not work like that. So I just, whatever comes to my head, I just, I'm, I just keep going, just keep going. Don't stop. Don't really think of anything. Um, again, it makes revisions a little bit more difficult, I think, but, um, some things to think of when you are writing are the literary devices. And that is, it's basically a broad term for the style and technique that you have, and it enhances your writing. And some of the elements that were missing on my first draft, because my first draft of the story, My Journey Back to Me, and if you, again, if you go back and read the blog that I wrote, I tell about how the first, first draft I wrote was so filled with raw emotion and I thought it was so good and I still stand by it but it was missing a lot of the literary elements to get the reader to connect because it was just a battle cry and it was just it was the, the characters were not round there were good characters and there were bad characters and the story was very um it was sad and it was traumatic so I changed that first draft almost to the point that you can't even recognize that the two stories are the same at this point. It's almost as if what I have now produced, uh, then the first draft, they're not even the same story. They're not even the same characters. They're really nothing alike because I realized that I was missing so many literary elements and the first draft was just almost something shocking and I don't know where exactly, I kind of have an idea where exactly it did come from, um, but, uh, I really was trying to get a lot of emotion out. And while doing that, it was great as far as the emotional aspect, but it did not read well. And that was something that I did learn. So um, some of the literary devices that I used in my last draft, uh, again, I will share that with you, which foreshadowing. So when I do read it, I want you guys to um, think about it as I'm reading it, some of these literary elements that I chose. And there's so many of them. These are just some of the ones that I like to use, um, especially in this piece. So it's foreshadowing, uh, imagery, 
metaphors, the mood and tone, the way that I, books that I like to read and books that I like to write or anything that I like to write is my tone is very direct. I'm not whimsical when it comes to my writing. I don't use a lot of descriptive words. Um, I use some, but I'm not one of those people that are gonna spend 10 minutes describing the clouds in the sky and the green grass. I don't like to read those kinds of things and I don't write those kinds of things, but other people love it and kudos to you for being able to do it. So my mood and tone is much more direct, probably sarcastic a bit, um, especially if you've read my blog, you'll know that um, I'm a bit sarcastic and uh, I, I just like a more lighter sense of uh, some of the things that I write. I kind of put a spin on it. However, this, my journey back is none of those things. It's something I really have never written before. Um, similes I like to use, um, and I use symbolism, and butterfly uh, are certainly something that I used in my story to describe how I was feeling. So those are some of the things that um, I enjoy and um, when, I, when I'm writing. And uh, one of the things to really keep in mind is the more you revise is it enhances your credibility as a writer. It, um, it increases your readability and have your readers connect with you because you may know what you're feeling, but when a reader's walking into a story that you're telling them, they need a little help. So those are the things that I found to be most helpful. Um, and that's how I have gone about with my revision process. Um, and I actually have come to love in a very odd way the revision process, so much so I kind of think it's a fault now. It might be a little bit of an addiction for me now because um, <laughs> Mark could attest to this and my children for sure, um, I, Revise, 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 revise. I will take an entire piece and delete it and start over. And we'll do that so many times. It's almost heartbreaking, but until I feel proud to press a submit button and then after I press submit button, I crumble and say, oh my goodness, what did I just do? I could have made that so much better. That's just the self-doubt of a writer. It's, <laughs> it's the mind of the writer. I don't know what to tell you, or at least my mind. Um, so... I really do revise a lot. I jokingly call myself a revision whore because I revise so much that it's nauseating at times. But I think that uh, some of the reasons why I do that is because I want it to, to present my best work. And even with my best revisions, I could go back and look at it and think of a hundred other things that I could have changed. And if you give it and read it to 10 people, 10 people will have 10 different opinions about it and say, hey, I think you should have done that. And one of the processes of what I wrote about, we had to do a peer review and I had my peers critique my work and that was part of their job to do and they got graded on it, as did I do it for other people, which by the way, I loved doing it. But they critiqued mine and the critiques that I loved most is when people gave me examples and thought, and it made me say, oh, I didn't think of it that way. But I took every single suggestion that someone had given me, to me and really considered it. And I didn't do each one. And for example, um, my professor and two people said, uh, and again, you'll see it, you'll hear it when I read it, uh, about a butterfly. Oh, why are you using a butterfly? They're so gentle. And I was adamant and I stood by my uh, symbolism of the butterfly. 
and I know I made the right decision. I knew I was going to make the right decision. I just had to change my writing so that my readers understood it. And when the same people read the work, my final work, they were so impressed by the fact that I used the butterfly. They wanted me to use a phoenix, a dragon, I don't know, these, these uh, other, other creatures and it just didn't work for me. It just, the butterfly felt right and I stuck to my guns and I'm thrilled that I did because that to me is probably my favorite part of my story <laughs> that I wrote. So that's what I have to say about revising. I am going to read you my story. Um, and the other part of this, and we could get into this just a little, uh, because I do think it's important, is that when we talk about revisions, it does not just mean our work. And sometimes it means where I'm working. So I used to sit at my dining room table and write, and or go to the library and write. And it did work for me. It was okay. And <laughs> I have someone in my life, Mark, who uh, encouraged me to, why don't you have an office? Why don't you get a desk there? Have your own space. And I'm so glad that I do have that space. It is something so important to me to have my own space. And um, when you walk into it, it's the mind of a psychopath, I think, because I have books open and papers everywhere. But I like to work like that because I'm always referring to something. So that's a revision that I made. Um, you know, my, my area that I wrote around, you know, and where I wrote is very important to me. As a matter of fact, if I'm somewhere I don't feel comfortable writing, I really have a hard time doing it. So to me, where I'm at, as far as when I'm writing, is something that I'm non-negotiable with. I have to be, I have to feel comfortable. Other people could write in a closet. Congratulations. Um, I have a harder time with that. It has to be very open, very airy for me. Um, another thing is your relationships. And part of my story, that uh, my journey back to me, is about relationships and revising your relationships because nothing stays the same and relationships end and begin and they become stagnant or there's ebbs and flows as with life. So that's something that when you're revising uh, not only your work and your atmosphere of where you work, but also the people you surround yourself with. So if I was to tell people my hopes and dreams and I was with somebody who did not support everything I'm doing, I would have to put them in a certain place in my life because they just didn't fit into my goals and my lifestyle. So that's something that people have to think about also is revising how you conduct yourself and with whom, as well as your lifestyle. Um, are you eating too much, drinking too much, smoking too much, watching too much television, um, not sleeping enough, that I'm completely guilty of that, um, not eating enough, again, guilty as charged. Um, but we have to sometimes revise and change the way we do things in order to be our best selves. And so everything does come back to writing and uh, relationships. And if you listen to my first podcast, I talked about the importance of human relationships and how great that connection is with other people. And when you include writing and books and human relationships together and how people feel and people being authentic and real, you really can create magic within your own life. So with that, I'm going to start reading my story. And um, I tell you to keep in touch with me if you have questions, if there's any blogs or 
any ideas you have that I'd le- you'd like to hear on a podcast, please reach out to me. So um, as I always say, be brave enough to change. And a great story always has a rising action. Right on. And thanks again for listening. And here is my story. This is my fictional short story, My Journey Back. I arrive home and moments later, grayness takes over my vision until there is darkness. I'm unsure what to do or what is happening. My mind races. I care nothing for myself, but only for the comfort of my family. I've abandoned myself to keep others comfortable by staying in a loveless marriage where I'm used only as a vessel of domestic service. An hour and 15 minutes pass and slowly my vision returns. That was odd, I think assuming it might be a migraine. I do not rest, I do not stop. I am kept small to accommodate a husband who has demanded I give up my career so that he could pursue his ambitions. I've been conditioned to prove my love by ceasing to exist. I wear an invisible cape, martyring myself for the sake of my children. I'm slowly dying inside and unaware that my entire world is about to be set on fire, not knowing a butterfly will emerge through the ashes. As I make dinner, my teenage daughter appears looking concerned. Mom, something isn't right. You are talking and walking weirdly. Francis, I'm fine. It was just one strained incident, I groan. I continue chopping an onion as I lean against the counter for support. No, mom, you're not fine, Francis argues. Glancing down in defeat, I surrender. I know she is right, and I'm growing tired of the self-inflicting forfeit of my autonomy to be a mother. Mom, please, she pleads. Exasperated, I set an appointment for later that day with a neurologist. This is ridiculous, I mutter as I pull into the parking lot. Walking down the hall, I glance at the paintings of butterflies, jealous of their beauty and freedom, I'm greeted by Dr. Wright, who notices my imbalance. He scribbles notes feverishly as he observes my movements. I scoff at any further testing, but obey his instructions. I don't have time for this shit, I roll my eyes. After testing, I return home, agitated by the inconvenience. The following day, the phone rings as my shaky hands answers. Jessica, this is Dr. Wright. You have a substantial benign brain tumor that needs to be removed immediately. Okay, sounds good, I say. I'm still wearing that mask that I've always worn, the one where nothing bothers me and everything is fine, the one where I pretend to be happy in a lonely marriage for my family's sake. I'm pacing around my bedroom when I catch sight of my reflection in the mirror. I clutch my hair and stare at my face, looking for clarity. I'm interrupted by the sound of the phone again. I clear my throat, exhaling softly. I hesitate momentarily. Hello? I say with a slow slur. For the first time, I notice the slur in my speech. Jessica, this is Dr. Wright again. We need to get you in tonight. I see something on the MRI. I want to operate on you tomorrow. He could hear by my silence that I am hesitant. I've never, I've never had a young, healthy person show these symptoms, and I don't want to take any chances, he continues stoically. Before I can interrupt, he instructs me where to go when I arrive. Listen, Jessica, I know this is sudden, but the city is shutting down because of the pandemic, and I don't want to risk waiting because the hospital will be overloaded with COVID patients. I hang up the phone and muffle my cries as I head downstairs to tell my children. As always, I make everything seem like no big deal. I am calm, even jovial, on the outside, never showing my vulnerability. On the inside, I am petrified. 
So guys, I'm heading out. They want to check out my noggin, I say to my kids as they look at me bewildered. I brush past my son, Max, who looks at me with concern and is fighting back tears. I embrace him and take a long inhale of the smell of his messy adolescent hair. Guys, I love you. I'll be back soon, I say casually. My husband, John, stares at me blankly and rubs his hands against my cheek. It's been, he's been acting strange and I appreciate this rare show of affection. The pandemic has imposed financial and emotional distress that he's not accustomed to handling. He has never spent much time home with us, so he's currently easily agitated. Could there be a worse time for this? John mumbles. I look down at the floor, ashamed. I'll drive you to the city, he offers weakly. The ride to the city is eerily quiet. There isn't any traffic and a sense of doom surrounds the usually bustling city. I wait for John to say something profound, maybe even loving. He touches my arm gently and says, you got this. I take a deep weighted sigh as I watch his car disappear. I enter the massive brick building and watch as doctors are in hazmat suits. I'm not sure where to go and stumble to the reception desk. I am here for brain surgery, I say confidently. The woman instructs me to the second floor. Whispers and urgency surround me about the virus invading our city, but I am far more concerned with the tumor invading my body. The physical and internal turmoil takes my breath away, but I hold steady in the facade of calmness. That night, I look out of the large window overlooking the view of the city. I imagine a life with purpose other than motherhood. I dismiss the feelings of emptiness, say my prayers, and force slumber. As the sun rises, I am wheeled down the corridor into surgery. I am on a gurney, and the sheets are stiff and irritating my skin. The smell of death consumes my senses as I gently put my hand to my heart. I close my eyes and picture my children's faces when my thoughts are interrupted. Do you have a living will? The attending nurse whispers as the room around me bustles with activity. The words ring in my ear momentarily as I cannot reconcile what she means. A sinking feeling consumes me as I struggle to comprehend her question. I am at a loss of words as I stare at the nurse inserting an IV into my arm. I flinch as she puts an oxygen mask over my mouth and I panic. I pull off the oxygen mask and become combative, demanding answers. My mind is jumbled up like a box of Legos. I'm confused, scared, and worried about my children. Ordinarily, I am patient, kind, and easygoing, but my anxiety has my head spinning and I'm becoming increasingly hostile. No one is paying attention to me, so I remove my oxygen mask again, looking for answers. What the fuck is happening? Why do you need to know if I have a living will? Looking to my left, I see a scalpel, scissors, and a large needle. A chill runs down my spine, though my palms are sweaty. My heart pounds like a hummingbird's wings. I watch my blood pressure rise on the machine beside me, and finally a man approaches and says sympathetically, You are in good hands. Just relax. I am grateful for his kindness, but I want to know if I'm going to die today. Please. I have children. They need me. I need them. I'm rambling now. There's some dangerous virus and my kids need their mom. Not engaging further, the man pats my arm and continues to prepare for surgery. I'm lonely left to navigate my emotions. I feel like a sailor without a compass during a storm. These feelings are not unfamiliar, though. I still had in process that I had a brain tumor looming inside my otherwise healthy body. I have a lump in my throat as I stare at the ceiling and begin to pray. My mind flashes back to my children and their dependency on my survival. My breath becomes heavier now and I am panting as the room viciously begins to spin. 
I desperately try to focus back on the present. My fight instinct forces me to react irrationally. This time, my voice is louder. Why do I need a will? Get me the fuck out of here. I'm thrashing now, trying to escape the unescapable. I hear the surgeon sternly say, put her out. Within moments, there is darkness. When I awake, I am groggy and feel like an hammer has been pounding my head. I touch my face and realize bloody gauze is wrapped around most of my head. My eyes are black and my face is swollen. I am startled by the nauseating amalgam of body fluids, antiseptic, and laundered linens devoid of perfume. I look around the room and I am alone. I wonder if I'm alive as I go in and out of consciousness. Hours later, a nurse appears looking concerned. You are being released tomorrow, he says. I should be in recovery for five days and rehab for two weeks, but I am being sent home the day after surgery. I wonder how I will manage and feel uncared and unworthy of proper medical attention. No problem, I say. However, I don't mean it. Moments later, Dr. Wright appears. Ah, you are up. My hunch was correct. There was so little blood flow to your brain that you would not have survived if we waited. He doesn't let this information sink in before he continues. I know you are supposed to go to rehab, but COVID poses a threat and it's too dangerous for you to be anywhere but home. We will provide some assistance, but you must do this alone. Alone. There is that word again. The following day, I'm home teaching myself how to eat. I drink protein shakes until the sight of them makes me want to vomit. Within a week, I'm feeding myself and feel proud of my tenacity. It's time to walk, I think. My legs drag as I fumble with the walker clumsily and steady past a mirror. I am paper thin and the staples that protrude from my head and smell of dry blood is no repulsive. Physically, I barely recognize myself. However, my tenacity is stronger than ever. Though my children urge me to rest, my pride refuses to allow me to acquiesce. With it, without me, the house is already falling apart. I am their anchor, though most times I'm drowning in their demands. Where is John? I grumble. He's never been available for me or the kids. He's always lived a separate life from us, and I've allowed it. Small warning signs have been going off like firecrackers for years, yet I chose to keep the peace out of convenience. Last summer, he stormed out of the house for hours without explanation, and his absence has been more frequent these previous six months. I remind myself that I am used to being left alone and am fiercely independent and will persevere. And I do. Within days, when I hear my children bickering about chores, I hold onto the counters and wipe them clean. Within two weeks, I am walking over a mile. Within three weeks, I exist as if this had never happened, except it did and I fake my progress for the comfort of those around me. I wobble to the kitchen, which is again in disarray. Fuckers, I sigh. As I gather the crumbs on the counter, something inside of me incites a rage, and I feel a shift within my soul. I stare at the small speckles of crumbs and realize I no longer want this life. I leave the pile of crumbs for the kids to clean and feel a sense of triumph. My physical recovery has become a journey of self-worth, as my body begins to heal, my mind gets stronger. I emotionally detach from my old identity as I rebel against the gender expectations of the past. John, can you help clean the kitchen? I don't clean kitchens, he snarls. For the first time in our marriage, I speak up. Well, you had better learn, I retort. My voice is steady, though my palms are moist. I need you to start helping. I stare confidently as I watch him gather the rest of the crumbs. 
It is not lost on me that John is changing our home's dynamics. Prior to the lockdown, he was rarely around, leaving me full responsibility for raising the children in a carefree environment. Increasingly, my happy house is a war zone filled with tension. Finally, three months after brain surgery, there is a breaking point. It is late afternoon and fatigue sets in from not being fully healed. I am folding laundry as the warmth of the fresh towel soothes me when I am startled by John's presence. He is pensive for a moment, watching me stay balanced against the dryer. You are not smart, pretty, or interesting enough. His words are staggering. The blood drains from my body and I go into shock. It is a miracle that I recovered from brain surgery, but now my body is weak, my mind is spinning, and my soul is tired. The hemorrhage of emotion and outbursts that John is spewing does not make sense. He is usually dismissive of me, but never verbally unkind. John, calm down. What's going on? I plead. I had a fling, many of them. The life you think we live is all a lie. I've been living a completely different life for a decade, and you've been too busy with the kids to notice. How stupid are you to think I'm always away on business? Life with you and the kids bore me. I wish you died on that operating table so I could be free from this marriage, he rages. I freeze as I feel my life drained from my body. The vengeance and hate in his voice go through me, my already beaten down and wearied soul. I hear my voice say, then leave. Like the tumor in my brain, I need you extracted from my life too. My words surprise me, but I know I deserve a life more than the crumbs I have accepted. Within a year, I reclaim my power and identity by living a life that ignites my soul and desires. The journey back to me has been a long one filled with self-discovery. Today, as I devour a piece of crumb cake in my new office, I reflect on how fitting into my old life would never be possible. It would be like a butterfly trying to crawl back into its cocoon. The safety of my cocoon burnt to the ground, and now I have risen from the ashes. In my darkness, I realize that the world doesn't need more selfless women, only more authentic ones. The only way to achieve this is to be wholly, unapologetically, authentically human. Now, just like the butterfly, I am free to soar. Thank you for listening.